It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. I am super excited to bring you our guest for this episode, Hobie Wedler. He is a PhD in organic chemistry, but that really just kind of merely scratches the surface on Hobie. He's a super interesting and extraordinary guy. Blind since birth, Hobie has taken in the world using his other four senses to understand how things work. And uh, his bio is quite extensive. If you go to uh, ambiguouslyblind.com, you'll see his guest profile with a complete bio. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. He's a delightful guy, and I've had an opportunity to talk to him a few times prior to recording this, and I always am able to leave our conversations with a smile and a better outlook on life. He's, he's tremendous. Hey, Hobie, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. John, it's an absolute honor. Thank you very much for the uh, invite on the show. I love what you do. I love the show. I love everything you stand for. So uh, it's totally my honor to be chatting with you right now. Hey, thank you. Obi, it is uh, also my honor. It's not that often that I speak with a chemist. <laughs> so um, I'm not very good with chemistry, but maybe I'll pick something up. As oh, I'm know. kind of a chemist. I don't know if I can call myself <laughs> a real chemist. I, I don't know. There's some letters after your name that indicate you probably know a little bit more about chemistry than the, than the average person. But <laughs> I should say uh, Dr. Obi. So thanks uh, again for stopping by. Chemistry and entrepreneurship, really cool things. Um, Lots of other things that you do too, like a lot of other things. It would take us—I don't know how many days it would take us to get through all the all of the stuff you do. And you're you're a wild man, so uh, <laughs> was interested to uh, be able to to get your attention to get you on here. So uh, again, I I appreciate it. And by the way, I want to shout out to uh, just at the beginning here to Skylar Oki uh, with uh, a great PR agency that uh, works with the the brand that I work with called Sorel uh, for making this intro happen. So a big shout out to Skylar. And my client Jackie Summers for uh, for getting us connected. Okay, so chemistry, entrepreneurship. Um, we're going to get into that and lots of other, I think, interesting things too. But before we get started, this is the Ambiguously Blind podcast, and um, you have a vision story that is pretty remarkable, something that I've never heard of. And I uh, want you to tell me what's going on there. And um, I mean, it's been since birth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually born. Uh, without eyesight, I uh, had a condition called microphthalmia, where basically one eye was extremely tiny, uh, but was intact and functional, kind of. Uh, I was born and had a cataract over it, and now I'm, um, you know, I'm I'm totally blind. My other eye was very large and had to be enucleated uh, when I was just a few days old. There's a funny story about my uh, parents finding out that I was blind uh, initially because there was no way that they would have known before I was born. You know, it wasn't anything genetic, wasn't anything they understood or knew about. I was born and they immediately knew, okay, there's something wrong with his eyes. And then I wasn't responding to light. So they said, oh, okay, you can't see. You can imagine being a parent of a child that you care a lot about. You just finished telling me that you were, you're the father of three. And when one is born with a very clear, uh, lack of one sense and that sense being one that you know and love and use for well over 50% of the information you acquire from your surroundings, you're going to be a little startled. 
And I think my parents were really concerned about my blindness and what they would do for a while. But the the most prominent of that concern was for about the first 12 hours uh, when I was born. They just didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know very sure. many blind yeah. people at all. I can't imagine. They didn't weren't really connected with with many blind folks. It just wasn't something that that they'd connected with. So when I was about 12 hours out of the womb, my mom decides it's a good idea to call her best friend from college. So she picks up the phone and calls her friend Barb. Barb's husband answers, and all Barb can hear in the background is, oh no. Oh, this is just terrible. Oh gosh, what are we going to do about this? And Barb means someone who uh, really likes to know exactly what's happening, right when it's happening, snatched the phone away from her husband and said, tell me what happened? What What's going on? And my mom said, oh, well, Hobie was born, but I got to tell you, he was born blind. And Barb's immediate response was, blind? Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to say he was dead. Blind, <laughs> we can deal with. You know, the reason she was so okay with blindness, and this to me is a really interesting fact, it turns out that her father's best friend was blind. And she spent a lot of time around this blind adult, someone who was kind of a role model figure. And uh, someone who really, really gave a lot to her as a child growing up. So her experience with blindness was not, oh, this is something that I know nothing about and have a hard time understanding what's possible. This was, okay, my dad's friend John was blind. He was great. He did all our handiwork. Whenever anything was broken, we called John. And uh, yeah, just another blind person. Like They can do anything they want. Yeah, no big deal. That, that's, a, that's pretty remarkable. Dude, I feel really lucky right off that the bat, my parents yeah. had that yeah. because, I mean, having someone literally say, I've been around a blind adult, he's fully capable, he can do whatever he wants, don't worry about it, I think gave both of my parents that feeling of, okay, we can handle this, you know, this is doable. And it really sort of paved a, a path for them to believe in me and have super high expectations. So. My brother, who's two years older, is sighted, fully sighted. And my parents I just pride them so much in having the same equivalent, very high expectations for both of us. They never lowered the bar. They uh, also expected that we would have super high expectations of them. But boy, growing up in, in the household was, you know, we better do our chores and do them well and do our best. That was all they cared about is if we were doing, as long as we were doing our personal best, and giving everything our all in every every path of life that we that we took on, they were happy. It was never like, oh, you should do better. Oh, one of you is doing better than the other. It was always, are you doing your best and are you happy? And they taught us to take responsibility for our lives and our actions early on. Like, this is your life. If you do well at something, you should be the one to earn the credit. And frankly, you should take the blame if something doesn't work out quite as well. And that led me at a very young age to take pride in my work. And a, a lot of blind folks I know uh, going through mainstream education have AIDS. And I did have an AIDS throughout elementary school, but they let that AIDS sort of do everything for them. They're not just their eyes. They're kind of their, their worker bee, their assistant, their thinker. They, they just sort of feed these people information and the people don't necessarily take responsibility for themselves. So like, you know, I knew a blind guy 
was in seventh grade and you know turned in a project and got a really high score on it. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Congratulations. And what I realized is that his aide did 90% of the work. And it's like, oh, but that, you you deserve like you should you know that that guy deep in his heart knew that the aide did most of the work and mm-hmm. doesn't take the the credit for the project, but you know, says he does on the on the surface. So it's these sorts of things that I just think are so important and the lessons that my parents taught me that were really truly invaluable to to my life as a blind guy. Yeah. Sounds like you got a pretty good set of role models there and your brother's probably the same way, I would guess. Yeah, just really good role models, a really wholesome upbringing. And you know, our parents never hired anything out on the house. We did all our own work on everything from all 100% of the food that we ate, we made. 100% of the housework, the yard work, uh, actually rebuilding parts of the house, rebuilding parts of the yard. That was all us. And we were included. And it was very common to get home from school and spend two, three, sometimes four hours on homework for me because things take a little longer and then head outside with them. And the four of us as a family would work on the house until dark. So I think they made that decision intentionally to do everything themselves, uh, in, certainly in part to teach us uh, how to work hard. And, and let me tell you, blind people, you know it, we have to work harder than our sighted peers often to achieve the same results. So learning a really good, you know, strong work ethic early on was important. Yeah. Now you said a minute ago that you made 100% of your own food. Yeah. So walk me through that. So basically never eating out. I mean, we didn't, we didn't kill our own animals and, you know, butcher our own, our own meat. You know, we, we kind of stopped there. We would uh, grow all the produce we ate. Uh, my dad in a former career was a commercial fisherman. So did a lot of fishing uh, in the Pacific ocean, which we live fairly close to. And uh, yeah. Now, now whereabouts this is California. Yeah, this is in California, about uh, 45 miles north of San Francisco in a little town called Petaluma. All right. Uh, interesting. I don't know a whole lot about that area, but I do know that's probably close to Napa. It's about 45 minutes outside of Napa. Yeah. yeah. All right. So there's some wine stuff for you, too. I don't know if that's coincidence or not, but you're you're big into food and wine also. You know, a lot of that has to do with my parents, you know, wanting us to cook all our own food as a family. So when I was 10 years old, my birthday present was a 42 quart soup pot. And the task was, <laughs> nice. Hey, you know, we love good flavored soups. We want to be able to take them to work. You know, we want to freeze them and take them to work with us. So can you make us soups to take, take in and out of work? And what I didn't realize is that I, I would have said, yes, that was one of my chores, but it wasn't a chore at all. It never felt like work. And what I honestly didn't realize then, but I realize now is that that's where I honed my skill with my palate and really began to fall in love with this idea of food and flavor being truly my visual art form. So when I taste something or smell something and think about what makes it, what comprises it, I feel like I'm seeing, quite literally seeing flavor, you know, in my mind's eye, even though I've never been able to see with my eyes before. That's just sort of how I imagine flavor coming about. So that set the stage for me really well uh, to to fall in love with food and, uh, you know, cooking and creating a meal that people really enjoy and can get behind and and connect with and, and really enjoy. That That is fascinating. Yeah. So seeing 
flavors, you said. Yeah, you know, and, and then one thing led to another, and I had my first taste of a really nice red wine uh, from, I've, so I live in Sonoma County, Petaluma's in Sonoma County, Napa County is the next county east. There's a winery that I'll give a little shout out to called Pride Mountain Vineyards uh, that straddles the Sonoma County, Napa County line right on the summit of a, of a peak uh, called Spring Mountain. And the first wine that I tried, really super high quality wine, you know, considered sort of a boutique wine was uh, their 2001 Cabernet Sauvignon. And when I tasted that wine, I remember thinking, sort of pausing everything I was doing and thinking, and when people describe the complexities of works of art that they see, that's what I'm tasting here. This wine is literally art, right? Mm -hmm. Then I ended up going to the University of California, Davis for my undergraduate and graduate degrees, which is uh, probably one of the biggest, Cornell people might argue with me, but I'd say one of the biggest wine programs in the country. And I didn't study wine, but I took enough intro to winemaking, wine appreciation, wine chemistry courses that I, I developed some, I, I learned just enough academically about wine to be dangerous. And then uh, was able to take those skills and really hone my palate in the wine industry and home in on a lot of these flavors and characteristics that we taste in wine and talk about in wine. And that just led me to really try to cut my teeth in that industry. And ultimately began in 2011 hosting a program called uh, Tasting in the Dark, which is a, a wine experience, but certainly not only around wine. It's around all food and beverage and really allowing us to refocus our attention when we're temporarily distract, not distracted by our vision or eyesight, as it, as it were. Yeah, so people do get distracted by vision and tasting in the dark. Um, how does that work? So the lights are off or the so blindfolds or what? For an hour, people sit down, put a blindfold on and engage in great conversation about what we're experiencing. First of all, how we experience and connect with the world around us. And then that leads into a discussion of let's have a conversation about all the senses. You know, what do you hear in the room? What do you smell in the air? How does your seat feel beneath you? Try to describe these things. And then we start talking about whatever food or beverage we're going to be tasting in detail. I did start these and, and develop this whole experience in the wine industry. So I'd say that definitely wine is the sort of grandfather beverage of tasting in the dark. It's how, we all, how it all got started with Francis Ford Coppola Winery uh, in 2011. Coppola is a, a film producer and film director, as you may know. And actually realized his love for winemaking and the art of winemaking even before he realized his love for film. We can talk more about that later, but I ended up getting a call from his team through a friend I was introduced and they said, hey, do you want to design a truly blindfolded wine experience? Francis experienced something fun in Asia. He wants to replicate it at his winery, but he wants it to be led and designed by a blind person. And that pulled me entirely into the world of wine and uh, changed my life and uh, gave me an experience, you know, the opportunity to develop an experience, I should say, that uh, would, would shape my life for the future and make it so that nothing again would be the same. You know, it, it, it framed my work. I loved the, I still love the people in that industry. I love the conversations we can have. 
And frankly, I love being able to turn blindness, which is something that a lot of people think of as a pretty striking disadvantage into a game-changing advantage. Yeah, that would be a great setting for that. So like, what's the most common thing that people, once they put the blindfold on and, and remove their visual distractions from the world, what, what do you hear most from people? That What is their reaction to that? It starts with them being a little nervous and uneasy and not really knowing what to expect. And then my thing is that I calm them down right away. We just have a normal conversation that's really mellow, really even keeled, and they lose their guard. They put their guard down immediately. Uh, and then they just start having fun and asking questions and talking about flavor. And you know, if we walk them into the room blindfolded, which we sometimes do, kind of trying to guess what the space looks like that they're sitting in. But every 100% of people that I've worked with say that the experience is so memorable. They tell their friends about it. They, they talk about it a lot for years afterward because it's like nothing they've ever done before. And they're vulnerable, but they're also, they, they find hidden capabilities that they didn't know they had for paying attention to the world when they're not distracted. And what's, what's really funny is that a lot of people who I know who are sighted and kind of loud and boisterous in social situations, they look at someone, they wave, they hoot, they holler. When we put a blindfold on those people, they become the most silent and reserved, mm -hmm. which is super interesting. That is interesting. Do you travel around with that kind of thing? Or is that is that at the winery there? No, I travel all over. And it started as a business to consumer experience. So basically me working with the winery, running the experience for consumers. And now is much more of a business to business. And I work with wineries around the world food and beverage brands of all kinds around the world. And it's a, what I've found is that it's a great way to work with groups of people and really um, showcase a product or a service, ideally from the food and beverage market, but it could be, could be anything for that matter, um, in a way that is memorable uh, to influencers and buyers and what have you, anyone who might you know, interact with or enjoy the, uh, the product or experience that we're, that we're showcasing. You've been to some pretty cool places with that? Oh, man. Yeah, we've had some fun traveling around. I actually gave a talk in Budapest, Hungary uh, for the coffee industry where uh, we've done some work in Adelaide, South Australia. I uh, did a couple of experiences up in uh, Seoul, South Korea and back in 2018 and have been doing more work uh, with Italy in the, in the Italian market. And we're actually presenting uh, week after next at the wine to wine business conference in Verona, Italy, which is an international business conference there. And then all over the United States as well. So I, yeah, we've been to some cool places and done some really fun work. That's interesting too. And you know, you're we giving shout outs to uh, Skylar earlier, but also um, we have another mutual connection. Um, you guys were just together a couple of weeks ago doing a, I think you were doing the tasting in dark in New York city. Yes, this is uh, Michelle Spitz you're thinking of. Yeah, with a, with, I think it was attached to a um, audio description um, panel conference meeting or something. And Correct. Yeah, so Michelle and I were actually presenting at the New York Film Festival. There was a panel designed by Michelle all about um, audio description and the importance of audio description. So we had a great time, a great conversation. And uh, we finished it off with a, with a true tasting in the dark. And it was a powerful experience in the film industry. A lot of people got excited about it. And of course, we used Francis Ford Coppola Wines and people kind of know who he is in the movie industry as well. Yeah, sure.
Okay, so you also mentioned uh, coffee. So I guess coffee's kind of in the similar realm there with wine. Yes, I uh, have done a fair amount of work with coffee, a lot of work with beer. Right now, actually, the reason that we're talking is because Skyler is the PR director for a company called uh, Sorel, S-O-R-E-L. Sorel is a product founded by Jackie Summers, who is the first black distiller in the United States. And uh, I love that work. That's a different uh, part of my work, which is work as a product development consultant and um, formula redesign consultant. I really love what I do in those spaces as well. We uh, have a really good time. There's something really fun about Sorel. And just a huge shout out to Jackie for bringing me into his team, believing in me and setting a commitment to work with folks who are marginalized, who are you know underrepresented. Uh, in the marketplace. So as I said, he's uh, the first uh, black distiller in the United States. I'm one of the first blind food scientists, uh, and we're working together, and we're working at the oldest distillery in the United States, literally with distiller's license number one. That's a company called Laird & Company out of New Jersey. So, you know, you got the trifecta. It's a little bit like three guys walk into a bar sort of story. We have a yeah. We have a really good time with it. And, and just a little bit about Sorel, actually, it's been around as a beverage for 500 years. That's a really long time. And it's one of these beverages that um, every family has their own recipe throughout the Caribbean. And it's the dominant ingredient is hibiscus or sorrel, as said in the Caribbean, and variations of other botanicals and spices native to the Caribbean. Ours utilizes a healthy amount of ginger, nutmeg, clove, and cinnamon, has sugar added to it, and then some alcohol, and then it's it's bottled up. So it's been made in family kitchens for 500 years, but until Jackie came along and figured out how to make it shelf-stable, it needs to go in the refrigerator. Uh, that's because of, I don't want to get too nerdy or too in the weeds, but that's because of pectins uh, that are in hibiscus, which fall out of the solution when alcohol is added. and can make a big mess and cause it to spoil if you don't either remove them or refrigerate the product once it's made. Interesting. You said it's Sorel? Sorel is the name of, uh, of Jackie's brand, S-O-R-E-L. But the, uh, the, the native uh, Caribbean spelling of, of the word hibiscus is sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L-L. And uh, that, that's what the beverage is typically called uh, in, the, in the motherland. Is that something that's relatively common in most markets to get at a store? It's growing in popularity right now. We're in over 20 states and it's expanding every day. Okay. I'm in Texas. Are you in Texas yet? You know what? I think we're going to be coming We're going to be coming your way in the spring. And when we're there, I'll be sure to let you know. Nice. Yeah. Okay. It's a tasty beverage. And what's so much fun for me is being able to really work um, on the technical side of it. By the way, I use all my sort of hats that I wear and skills that I have in, in most of the work that I do. And Sorel is just a really good lens where I can kind of use all my, all my work and all my skills as a chemist. So we're dealing with a, a really interesting ageability study right now, looking at how hibiscus chemistry, in particular anthrocyanin chemistry, changes uh, with light and photooxidation as hibiscus ages. So we're looking to mitigate that in certain ways. I'm able to use my my love for flavor and blending ingredients and literally tasting flavors and, and seeing them when I taste them. 
just as a sensory expert, and then as a food scientist, really figuring out, okay, we have one way that we're making it right now. How can we make this even more consistent and be able to scale up 10, 20, even 100 times beyond what we're doing right now? Guys, you're talking a lot about tasting, and I want to talk to you about sensory stuff too, but I want to take you back a little bit, back to that pot you got for your birthday where you're making some soups. <laughs> Just real quick, what was the best soup you made in that pod? You remember? Do you have a favorite one? I do, man. I'm a minestrone guy, so I made a. I I still do to this day. Make a make a really good minestrone, and I'll, it's just basically your your standard, uh, you know, for every gallon of soup, like one and a half to two onions, a couple of bell peppers, maybe two cloves cloves of garlic or so, all sautéed up, and then I usually add sweet Italian sausage to my minestrone, mm-hmm. and I don't know. If, I don't know what you feel about mushrooms, but I love mushrooms. So mm-hmm. for a gallon of soup, I'm going to add a pound and a half of mushrooms anyway. And then um, usually some tomatoes. You can use fresh or canned. If they're in season, I love to use fresh. If not, uh, canned tomatoes do the trick. And then a good healthy amount of green beans and you know some, some chicken broth or vegetable broth. And then uh, finish it off you know, rise that's done cooking with a, a healthy portion of greens. So kale, collards, dandelions, mustard greens, whatever the case may be. And my secret, which I'll I'll share with your guests, for a really good minestrone is to throw you know how Parmesan cheese comes packaged and you usually get part of the, the original wheel. Mm-hmm. So it has a rind on one end of it. Yeah. Throw the rind from the Parmesan into the minestrone. So whenever I use up a, a piece of Parmesan cheese I never, this is the way I am. I, I find ways to use every component. So something like the rind that people might throw away, I never throw that stuff away. I just save it for minestrone and it adds so much depth of flavor and sort of earthiness. Hmm, interesting. So that's has something to do with your upbringing, the science, the chemistry, the... I tried it one time when I was 10 years old and it tasted delicious. And I said, that's cool. We're yeah. going to keep doing this. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's the upbringing thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. There's something else I want to tell you about the sensory world. And that's this idea of, of taking, I've actually wanted to tell you this since, since we, uh, you know, since I, I wrote up some notes for you and just didn't, didn't remember to put it in your notes, but, uh, cause I just, I just thought of it. I know that you and I both have a love for music. Uh, we talked about that in sort of our, our pre-call. And one of the things that, that I think is so much fun is, um, thinking about what so we talk often about pairing wine with food right but what other arts can we pair wine with like why can't we pair wine with music so in early 2020 literally immediately before the pandemic hit i uh well i was called in late 2019 and did the experience in early 2020 the culinary institute of america which is one of the leading culinary schools in the country and uh uh just a, a really, really good school and well-known school in the in the world of food. Uh, it does a conference every year where they bring in beverage professionals, mostly sommeliers, which are wine experts, trained wine experts, basically. And they have a habit of calling me whenever they need something really strange and out of the ordinary presented at a conference. So they called me and said, Hobie, we want a presentation so we're going to do a wine and disco, silent disco event as our after party, where people are going to be listening to music silently on headphones 
and then rating wines based on what they taste. And we want to think about some way to relate wine to music as our plenary session, as our closing session for that day, immediately before guests go up and start to disco and drink wine. So what can you do? So let me get back to you. Now, you and I, I know through conversation, both have a love for Dave Matthews and his music. Yes, we do. As you may know, Dave Matthews has a wine brand called Dreaming Tree. I did not know that. He does. And the wines are very good. You should try them. They're all over Texas. I know that. And through a friend, I, the wine industry is a very small world. So everybody kind of knows everybody. So I was able to get the name and email address of Dave's winemaker, a guy named Sean McKenzie. And I said, what really is the harm if I just send Sean an email and tell him what I'm thinking, which is blindfold people and have them taste a few different Dreaming Tree wines out of the Dave Matthews songbook. And I was thinking, all Sean can do is say no. Like, that's fine. But I got to check. I got to just see what he says. And 45 minutes later, I got an email that was so enthusiastic saying, this sounds amazing. I'm in. Let's do it. Come meet me at the winery next week. So I was like, yeah, that's, that's going to be fun. That's a win. So we sat down at the winery, tasted through all the different wines. I, he and I picked five of them. Well, actually four of them and five tastes. And uh, I had an idea and some suggestions of what songs to pair the wines with. But Sean said, hey, you mind if I call Dave and run all this by him? I said, no. As he called Dave and Dave loved what we lined up, he said, just have fun with it. Just do it. So what we did is we actually paired five wines with five different songs so a lot of songs from the newest album which is called come tomorrow you probably know the song have you listened to come tomorrow yes i have it in fact yes you know do you remember yeah that fun summertime uh-huh. song yeah yeah we paired that up with it with a chardonnay and then uh sorry guys i'm getting really technical here with with song names but uh samurai cop oh joy begin was paired with a with a pinot noir that mm-hmm. was a really fun pairing And this is where we got a little crazy. The next two pours were both of the exact same vintage, same everything, same bottle of rosé. So for the first pour, we paired it with uh, the song, um, I'm trying to think of the name. Is it okay if I call you mine? It's one of the lyrics, what I always call the song. But it's, oh, Here On Out. That's what it's called, Here On Out. Mm -hmm. So we we paired the, the third wine with Here On Out. And it was just a really... Like people described it as fruity, as sweet, as floral, you know, all these, all these really like summertime, cool, happy, sweet things. They described the song as that or the wine? The, the wine. Yeah. Okay. The wine. So they were tasting rosé while listening to Here On Out. Okay. Yeah. And that's when they got all the sweet notes. Yeah. Right. And then, so this is a room, mind you, of 250, a lot of whom are master sommeliers, which means they've been studying wine and wine flavor for years Mm -hmm. and it had to take oral and written exams and it's it's hard right it's hard stuff so i always try to see what experiences i can put together to sort of confuse everybody a little bit and get them thinking about about wine differently and again they're blindfolded so they weren't seeing the wine color so we took the song when you're weary or when i'm weary which is one of my favorite songs it's about endurance and keeping on trying Mm -hmm. um it's just just a piano piece. So it's it's really a stunning song that I highly recommend to anyone. And we paired it with the same rosé. People describe the wine as being spicy, earthy, uh, 
these sorts of characteristics that do not imply sweet, fruity, or floral at all. Interesting. And yeah. when they they guessed which wine it was, it was all over the board. It was a red blend. It was you know nobody really knew. And when I told them it was the same wine, they were just silent. They had no mm-hmm. idea. So that was really fun. And then and then of course we we took the blindfolds off and uh, and queued up a video of of a live performance of the song Ehe for uh, to be paired with a Cabernet. And that was a I'm sorry, I, I spent like 10 minutes telling you about that, but I just had to because it was such a passion project of mine. And, you know, I just I just love this idea of wine and music. That's a no, that's super cool, because we we kind of geeked out about Dave Matthews earlier anyway, off off the record. <laughs> and um, I certainly appreciate that. I'm, I'm a big fan um, of Dave, too. But walk me through like your when you're pairing these wines with a song like what? What are some things that come to mind? Like, how do you, were, were you focused on the particular album or was it the catalog in general or? It was, it was kind of like Dave saying, let's focus on the new stuff a little bit, but also knowing what the, what the catalog was and knowing what the wine was. So do you remember just for your listeners is a song remembering like a high school summer and all the things that high schoolers might do during a summer of fun, a summer of love, you know, whatever you can fill in the blanks and, mm-hmm. and I highly recommend anyone to listen to that song kind of kind of reminiscent of childhood and like a new life ahead and, and fertility and all this stuff and and we paired that with a very young wine uh, which is a Sauvignon Blanc which is going to be f- very fruit forward a lot of these uh, these really nice grapefruit tones a lot of citrus a lot of tropical fruit just Sauvignon Blanc makes me happy when I taste it and it brings back happy memories and Pairing that with a song like uh, like Do You Remember, I think, is a is a really fun one. Yeah, that's super cool. I like that. And then thank you. And then, you know, something on the far other end of the spectrum, you know, a dark red, almost almost uh, really astringent and tannic, delicious Cabernet Sauvignon we take and we pair with the song Ihi, which isn't a dark song at all, but it's it's a song trying to mimic the languages that that were spoken in North Africa before they even had words. It was a a great uh, trip that Dave and his family went on in in North Africa. And and Dave heard people talking, um, people who were guiding them and working with them. They explained that, you know, we're we're speaking in a language that was sort of our, our language of sounds and, you know, scat singing and cadences and whatnot before there were even real words. So it's this crazy, like, what did, what did song and what did vocalization sound like before we had words? And then Dave took what he heard and tried to put it to a, to a tune and, uh, you know, tried to kind of mimic some of what he heard. And that's how the song he was born. And I think that deserves certainly one extreme of the spectrum. And we chose the, the really dark, almost wintertime kind of, very subtle um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah, that's super cool. That is, uh, yeah, I can't say it enough. That's just, that's awesome. So have you... By the way, do you drink wine? I do. So, and I know you're into music, all kinds of music. So like, try, next time you're enjoying, you know, you're sitting with your wife and enjoying a bottle of wine, try playing a couple of different songs by a couple of different artists and see what works. How, it goes. how that affects the taste and what the exactly. experience is in general. Exactly. And I would, I would ask any of your listeners to do that as well. 
you know, really, if you, if you drink wine, if you don't drink anything, just, just try it with anything that you like and, or, or any food that you like and pair it with music and see how the music changes your perception. Yeah. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, where you had the same wine, with two songs and you got a total different reaction. Totally. Interesting. Okay. Do you have any recipes for that? Like a particular <laughs> wine? Like, so Dave, Dave Matthews makes his own wine. Okay. So we could listen to Dave Matthews. Any anything else in that realm that you would suggest? Oh man, uh, we can get really specific here. So I um I was drinking. This is a couple months ago. You're testing my my knowledge here. I was drinking a really nice Sonoma County Pinot Noir, and uh, Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley. That's kind of near where I'm from. It's just delicious. It's just like really delightful. And I was actually listening to. Mozart's son- piano sonata in C major, and then also Tchaikovsky's piano concerto number one throughout this, you know, this bottle of wine. I was sitting with my partner and we were just listening to classical music and enjoying this wine. And I realized so poignantly and vividly, I, I'm a total fan of classical music too, by the way. I realized how well Pinot Noir goes with upbeat piano music. So that's a really fun one. Interesting. Like I say, I find that like for my sort of coffee house style singer songwriter music, I like white wines, crisper, brighter things, and then for more rock and roll, more bassy type stuff, I, the darker the wine, the better. Okay. Yeah, but here's the funny thing, right? When you go to a show, like let's say you go listen to a music concert, and you buy a bottle of wine and bring it back to your seats, you're so distracted by everything going on around you, you know, the sound, the noise, the I don't know, mm-hmm. the pot smoke, whatever, depending on who you're listening to or right. whatever the case may be, you know, the roar of the crowd. And then not to mention, if you're sighted, what you're seeing, right? What the what the visuals are, what's on the screen flashing before your eyes and how is that affecting your overall perception of the wine that you're drinking? Yeah, so and, taste uh, is taking a backseat to all that, I imagine. Totally. We're not even thinking about it. Wine is just the, the lubrication for the fun. Right. Yeah. Right. But when you take that, that step further into the academic realm in my mind wine changes from something to drink to have a good time to an academic journey just like any other art form yeah that's pretty wild i've never really thought about it like that at all it's different yeah it's a different way of thinking about it and i I, to me it's it's just kind of weird when you like anything and everything can be art right like definitely it's gonna sound really weird but but the art of creating a comfortable mattress, if you're a mattress company, that's an art form. Yeah, it sure is. Whether you like it or not. Like, and, and we're all artists and scientists all, all the same, right? Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They're very close and, and tight-knitted together. Okay, so I've got a few things i got to try now. Uh, Absolutely. It's not just wine either. So it could be some other sort of spirits or... Oh, um, anything. I don't know if chocolate milk, we have a bunch of little ones running around here. So I don't know if we can do that with chocolate milk and Sesame Street. You could. Or... <laughs> you give it a try. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, I guess we're know, watching Sesame Street. So maybe we should just keep it with the non-visual thing with music. There we go. I'll tell you something something really fun about Sorel, about the product that I'm working on now. And I can send you a bottle, by the way. That's easy. When you taste it, if you try it like chilled, like in the refrigerator, out of the refrigerator versus room temperature versus warm. Most people would not be able to identify 
for instance, warm Sorel versus room temperature Sorel as the same beverage. Hmm. Totally different taste, huh? Totally different taste, totally different way it makes you feel when it's, when it's room temperature, it's more tropical, more, you know, it's bright red because of the hibiscus. So it makes you think of more sort of that summery feeling, sort of everything that we talked about, but then you heat it up and it becomes like Christmas, right? Because you've got your cinnamon and your cloves and your ginger and, and your nutmeg all playing around with the hibiscus and you create this like, I, I call it a, a hug in a, in a mug. You know, it, it really, it's just warming and, and cool and fun. Versus cold, it's like, okay, now it's cocktail time, right? You got this stuff over ice or mm-hmm. just out of the refrigerator. It makes you feel like you're drinking a little bit of a cocktail. Sorry, I, I totally just spent the past 15 minutes geeking out on a tangent about everything sensory that I think is cool. And thank you for humoring me. No, you're welcome. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, sensory liter- literacy is, is one of the things that you're all about too. And I think that's pretty fascinating. Because I, I think most people don't actually, I know most people don't think about it. It, it. I think, I don't know if it was you that said this or I've heard somebody else say this, but you know, well, you said it earlier about people being distracted by vision, but like, I think most people get most of their information in general from what they see. So I'll tell you, I've, I've read several studies on this, our vision, our eyesight. And, and by the way, I'm careful to call it eyesight and not vision because I think all of us can have vision. Some of us just may lack eyesight. Yes, Um, I'm with you. Cool. We take in 85, 90% of our surroundings from what comes in through our eyes, which means that we have four additional perfectly good senses that we only use to take in 10 to 15% 15 of the information that we're absorbing. And to me, that's a lot of senses and a lot of skills we could be using to take in only a tiny part of the world. Yeah. So it just goes to show how can we delve into our other senses more poignantly? And to me, this concept of sensory literacy is actually pretty simple. If we think about the word literacy, we typically think of being able to read a book, right? So if you're literate, you can pick up a book and read it. If you're print literate, you can do that in print. I am not print literate, but I'm braille literate. I can read a book in braille very easily. You look at a page. So, you know, at first it looks like a lot of lines or a lot of dots, whatever you're reading, and might look jumbled and confusing. And then you start to just parse that and make sense out of what's on that page and create a story in your mind from what's on that page. Literacy in terms of our senses is the same thing. And being sensory literate is, I think, the ability to take in information from all of our senses process it through your mind's eye like you do any information you take in on a daily basis and come up with a logical conclusion based on that information you took in. So we're all, all of us who can see are visually literate, right? I tested my, my uh, nephew a couple of months ago, who's five years old, to see if he knew his colors already. I handed him a red pen. I said, okay, read what color is this pen? And he immediately said, that pen's red. So I knew at five years old, he already has this lingo down of what colors are, right? If you show someone a red fence and say, what is that? They're going to know it's red from childhood. And they're going to know that a fence separates two things that shouldn't be interconnected. And that's just the fact. It's known. Mm -hmm. It's okay. We accept that, right? When you let people smell a couple of different things or smell one thing, you say, hey, what are you smelling? What's that fruit or what's that spice or what's that flower, for instance? 
they have a really hard time identifying it, not because their senses of smell are bad, but because they're not necessarily focused on them as much as they are their eyesight. And it's all about practicing. It's all about honing our craft and homing, homing in on our senses. So for me, you know, I'm not good with my senses just because I'm blind, right? I've spent hours per day for years, just like a guitar player might, practicing using my senses. And that all started with the soup pot when I was a little kid. And I did not realize that. But I was training my palate. I knew what celery smelled like. So I was training my palate on that and relating that smell. Okay, where else can I smell celery in my surroundings? You know, these sorts of things are really impactful things that just sort of are overlooked. And I, I'm just such a firm believer in being able to, I think it's more calming in life too, if we are so distracted by our eyesight all the time and we can go outside on our way to work or on our way home from work and enjoy birds chirping and smell the air and think about what it smells like and why. All these different things are important. Yeah, it gives you a really different concept, I guess, or idea of totally. what's going on and just being aware of your surrounding. Because I never really thought about that either as a person who lived fully sighted for the first 19 years. Um, you, that's just, I, I mean, I, yeah, everything I did was based on sight. I mean, I heard now I shouldn't say, you know, if, if it's normally 90, I've always been pretty keyed in on sound for some reason. There was a a story or I I can tell you that when I, I, as a kid, I would, I played soccer and, um, my parents would come to the games and in particular, when my mom would come to the game for, for some reason, I've been able to identify sound a lot or very well as even, even as a kid. And so my mom's, my mom's car keys, they jingled in a certain way. Like I could tell my mom's car keys from my dad's car keys. Like when, when one of them walked in in the room and I wasn't looking at them and if they put their keys down or something, I was like, that's mom, that's dad, whatever. Right. So my mom would come to my soccer games and she would like jingle her keys on purpose. (gasps) And I would know my mom's there. Like that's crazy with no visual cue. Yeah, I would be running down the field and I would hear these keys and, okay, mom's there. Oh, mom's here. Yeah. Mom saw that. Right, or or I made a play or something and, you know, so everybody probably thought she was pretty weird, but she was, you know, but it really started pretty. pretty I love that. Yeah, and that that's something that I think obviously worked well for me in the future, going, going forward with, with the amount of vision I've lost that um, the senses. So I just think. And that was going to be my question for you, John. I'm sure that that audio skill um and that that high level of um being tuned in to what your ears are telling you has helped you immensely as a blind person yeah i think it has definitely and so what i was going to say was if if the normal person takes in 90 percent of you know information through their eyes i i, I would say i was probably closer to 88 <laughs> or maybe 80 <laughs> nice. because uh i i was i've always been tuned in which i think is why i'm such a music fan i just love music and and as a person that with with the visual impairment um i mean i'm totally blind in my right eye and i have 2300 vision in my left eye and it's really hard to describe and explain and um that's why it's called ambiguously blind and all that but i i just love i love radio i love listening to music i like i i like things where i don't use my eyes because it's it's so much uh it's easier for me to take in information through my ears or my other senses, but in this case, my ears with music, 
and I can I really have a a different level of understanding. And we we talked earlier too. I've been I saw the Rolling Stones a few years ago, nice. and I wasn't distracted by the stage. Uh, I mean, I was sitting right. far enough away from it that I I couldn't see it. I mean, it was in the in the arena, um, sure. but I wasn't wasn't really able to pay attention. So I I experienced that you know mostly actually probably ninety nine sound wise. And another example was just a few weeks ago. Do you know Michael Bublé? Uh, yeah. So I do. that that's Love my that's my wife's number one, right? So okay. he was in town, and we went to see Mike, and I like him; he's great. But in the uh, this was at the American Airlines Center in Dallas, and nice. in the arena, he's um, there was a the stage, you know, the stage, but there was this like peninsula that went way down in front of the stage where he would walk right. out and sing, right? And so I noticed that when he would walk, so he he was on the stage singing and doing the stuff up there, but then as he walked out, the in the arena they moved, they changed the speakers, so they were like. Uh, what do you call that? Um, where it's proximity-based sound. Yeah, I should know this. But um, anyway, Apple's this doing is... that with their earbuds and stuff. Where it's I can't remember what it's yeah. called, but like when he would walk to the away from the stage, the the speakers in the arena would change. And I asked That's my incredible. wife. I, I asked my wife afterwards, like, did you notice that? And she's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no. What are you talking about? <laughs> but I did because I I hear that stuff, right? And I suspect you would have picked up on it immediately. You go. You wouldn't have known he was moving, but right. you definitely would have sensed. I guess you could have sensed he was moving because the sound literally was changing uh, in the arena. It was like I was sitting. He was he was moving from my left to right, and I could tell right. that the sound was on my right. That's um, good audio designing. If they can yeah, replicate that in the pretty arena, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's incredible. When you saw just a question, when you saw the Stones, did they play "Sympathy for the Devil"? Yeah. And did they light the the huge like cannon off at the beginning of the song? I don't like, recall. The, I don't know. I don't. There must that. have been a big flame. And, and what I remember is obviously we were not close to the stage when I saw the Stones, and when they lit this this fire flame off, we could feel it from where we were sitting. Okay, so it's just yeah. this this really wild, cool thing. Was Charlie still around when you saw them? Yeah. Um, awesome. Trying to think when this was, but but pre pandemic. Oh yeah, yeah. It was like, um, gosh, I don't remember long enough that I can't remember apparently. But it was in Dallas. They played at the uh, Cowboys uh, AT and T Stadium, which is where the Cowboys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. It's cool. And of course, actually, um, at that time they said this is the last time you'll ever see the Stones, right? And then they came back. They were here two well pre. I think it was two years ago. I think they had a show maybe that might not canceled by the pandemic, but they were here last year again. Wow. So, yeah, I don't think those guys are ever going to stop. No, I don't think so. And I think Keith's going to outlive Mick. Well, that I don't know. I bet you there. I bet you can bet on that in Vegas. I'm sure that's a, a I'm wager sure you, you can. can make. I don't know how. I don't. I don't get it. But God bless him. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I I did not intend on getting into a lot of this music stuff, but I'm I'm very into that. I've got to got to try some new things and with some tastings and pairings and. You know, I'm going to try that too with coffee because I drink coffee in the morning and uh, well, actually throughout That's the day, awesome. but like in the morning, um, there's got to be some music I can pair with coffee. You know, I do that anyway. It's like you go to a coffee shop. That's number right. one, right? That's They've always got some kind of music playing with, to set the mood, but, um, and, and I do, I do key into that. I, I, I hear 
just like you do, probably not as good as you, but I definitely, you know, we'll go somewhere and I'll say, did you hear that? And then people are like, I don't, no, what, I didn't hear that. What, what happened? You know, but then they'll say, did you see that? And I'll say, uh, no, I didn't. What happened? <laughs> Interesting. So no, totally. You know, yeah. Just, uh, and, and think about it. Think about how music creates ambiance. And it's one of these things that if we're, if, if we think about it, it's like, yeah, totally. We need the music. Right. But if we don't think about it, it just becomes sort of a non, it doesn't matter. But a coffee house that you're sitting at enjoying your morning cup of coffee with no music would basically no sound would be a little eerie. It wouldn't be fun at all. No. no. But, and again, most people aren't paying attention to it. They just kind of, right. it's the background that just makes them feel good because it's there, but they're, you, you got know, it. It's, it's, I don't, I don't know how to describe that. Yeah. But that's, that's what's going on. Yeah. So interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. Well, this has been quite the chat, John. I'm, yeah. I'm just so elated that we uh, that we met, that this all came together. I mean, I think that, yeah, it's just, it's an absolute pleasure to connect with you. Yeah. And I got some new routines to uh, re-tap into and make sure I do those things. I think uh, the listeners probably will do that too. Is there a place that uh, they can go to find you, Hobie, and what you do? Absolutely. They can find me, my line of spices, and uh, a lot of my work at uh, my, my website, hoby.com, hoby.com. And what I want to say is that no matter what you think, you can do whatever it is that you want to do if you put your mind to it. Don't let anything or anyone hold you back or tell you you can't do something. But be sure to do it all with a positive, open mind. And what I call an abundance mindset, which is really allowing our minds to be open to anything and any possibility and anything that comes our way. So be open-minded. And to that end, I am an extremely open-minded person. I want to talk to everyone because I know I'll learn something from you. So don't be a stranger. Reach out to me anytime. Email address is real simple. It's just Hobie, H-O-B-Y at Hobie Wedler, H-O-B-Y-W-E-D-L-E-R.com. Like I say, reach out. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. I will respond. Awesome, Hobie. I can't, I can't end any better than that. So I'll just let them know that we'll link to those uh, in the notes of the podcast too. So just look down or scroll down and you'll see the links to that or, or just remember what he said. Thanks a bunch, Hobie. <laughs> John, thanks so much. It's an absolute honor, my friend. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.